Hey, hey, hey. It's Monday. It's the Religious Studies Project. I'm David Robertson, and I'm staring at the smiling, bearded face of, of Christopher Cotter. How yeah, are you, Chris? Yeah, I, I've gone a bit manic. Uh, I think my chewing gum must have had something in it. <laughs> well, let's hope it was just tobacco. Um, it's, you know, we need coffee. It's Monday morning. We've just finished teaching. We hope that you've got your coffee as you listen to this week's episode. Yes, it's a conversation I had with Carmen Becker um, back in June um, in Bern in Switzerland at the EASR conference. Um, shout out to Moritz Klenk for making the audio happen and shout out to the EASR for their um, gracious provision from now on of a bursary for the RSP um, to go and cover the conference. Um, we'll introduce the topic when I pass it over, but it was based on a paper that Carmen gave on the uh, categories of religion, secular, and the refugee in contemporary Germany. We are recording this interview on what I believe is the International Day of the Refugee. <laughs> and I am joined in uh, Bern um, at the European Association for the Civil Religions Conference by Carmen Becker. And we are going to be talking about um, the role um, of religion and secular secularity in the, the construction of the category of the refugee and the sort of um, mutual um, co-constructing natures of those discourses, <laughs> particular reference to Germany. Uh, but Carmen is based at um, the Leibniz University in um, Hanover, and she's done a lot of work on various historical constructions of Salafism. And we're going to be talking about her current project today. Uh, so first off, welcome to the Religious Studies Project. Carmen. Thank you. Um, so I've just seen your um, presentation on the panel there. This is seven o'clock in the evening. <laughs> which is quite late at a conference when, uh, particularly when we had... Uh, the network dance the day before. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. They did not plan this well. Um, but I've just seen your paper, and it was excellent. I'm hoping what we can do is have a sort of conversational version of that paper. Um, so, but first of all, if you could set the scene, um, because people might be listening to this um, five years from now, ten years from now, who knows? <laughs> so... Um, um, what's happening? There's that phrase, the refugee crisis, the migrant yeah. crisis, and things like that. But maybe just set the set the scene. Um, in fact, you started your paper with a couple of anecdotes. That's true. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, we we all know the term refugee crisis since the summer of 2015, roughly. This is when, um, yeah, higher amounts of, of uh, asylum seekers came to Germany and also to Europe in general. We still remember the scenes, I guess, from tel- television and so on of huge. Um, um, of masses of uh, people at the border with, between Hungary and Germany trying to get into Germany and so forth. So there is sort of imaginary behind it also. Um, well, but in 2015, I was still living in the Netherlands and there um, not so many people from Syria and Afghanistan and Iraq came to the Netherlands. Most of them went to Germany and to Sweden, actually. And when I traveled um, from the Netherlands to Hanover, um, I mean, this is the anecdote of the train station, famously, I was welcomed at the Hanover train station by a Syrian man with a rose, with a red rose, and a board saying, thank you. And I was, I really couldn't make sense of it, so I started talking to him, and he explained that he wanted to thank the Germans, or the German people, as he put it, mm-hmm. for uh, welcoming the refugees in and for letting them cross the border from Hungary to, to Germany. And I really appreciate it, and this is why I give the rose. And I thought it was really, yeah, intriguing <laughs> in mm-hmm. a way. 
And then later, after I had moved to Hanover a few weeks later, I saw that there was a Wikipedia entry dedicated to the European refugee crisis. It was also the title of the entry, European Refugee Crisis. And Wikipedia for me is a sort of an instance that when something gets an entry there, it's established fact. It's truth, mm-hmm. right? This is what is a reference point. It's also interesting then to see how the truth is established on the editorial pages, but it's another thing. And this entry, European Refugee Crisis, which later turned into European Migrant Crisis, you could also look why do I use refugee in the beginning and migrant later on, mm-hmm. but that's another story again, has been translated into 60 different languages, which is a lot. I think. And, um, there are also substantial entries, not just uh, a few um, words on it, but there are full text <laughs> there. So something that actually, this is an image, the refugee crisis that has traveled widely then mm. through several languages, also Arabic, Persian, Turkish, and yeah. so on. So you use the term, it's a discursive event. Yeah, um, because I mean, how does something become recognized as an event, right? It has to be termed, um, images have to be established. And it has to be understood as something disruptive, right? Something out of the ordinary, something that is breaking into normality. I mean, and if you would have looked at um, the developments before the so-called refugee crisis, it wouldn't have been so surprising. I mean, mm-hmm. the, 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 the camps in the region, in Lebanon, in Jordan, they were just running out of money. So, well, camps are provided by the United Nations Food Program. They were issuing calls for donations. They were saying, if you don't get donations, we have to cut uh, the the amount we can give to, to those in our camps half. Uh, and the full amount is what they need to to survive. So if you cut this in half, this is a crisis in the sense that it's existential. And this was known already by the end of 2014, beginning of 2015. So and what do people, I mean, if they cannot survive, they move on. They run out of money. They don't get anything, so they look elsewhere. So that was acceptable, but it still came as a surprise, as a wave, right? Uh, so it's interesting to see how, how people perceive things and what they're not perceived. Yeah, it was also in the media, mm. in between that the uh, uh, World Food program, a program for the United Nations was calling for the nations, but there was no connection, right? No further thinking about it, also from the politicians, at least not in public. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Um, so... We're going to get to the religion thing, of yeah. course, because we're on the religious studies project. Yeah. But um, you, you, you're going to have to try really hard here because you're not going to have your diagrams. <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> but you've got you've got some theory for us, yeah. Um, <laughs> to to set the scene, so um, Foucault. Yeah, um, I just like Foucault a lot when you think about how truth is established in general. And I think in religious studies, it's not surprising when some someone uses discourse theory, right, to, to theorize something. What is not so common is to use dispositive as a concept. It's something you find in Foucault's latter period of work, right? Um, and um, it's something that he has never really fleshed out, like many things he hasn't fleshed out. <laughs> and uh, something that is now uh, really discussed also in uh, among the German sociologists, how, I mean, this positive as a concept, how do you do research with it? Hmm. So just in parallel, so just like um, the discourse term was taken from Foucault and then fleshed out into different varying programs of research and research styles and so forth. The same is happening now. 
um, or has been happening for, for roughly 10 years in Germany with reference to this, to this positive. Um, yeah, what is a dispositive? <laughs> <laughs> I've, I always used French language to make it clear. Um, well, I was talking about three connotations of a dispositive, of three semantic fields, right? Um, that a dispositive, um, brings us to, um, for example, uh, first of all, this dispositive as a sort of, of mechanism, a sort of apparatus that is also reminds us of Gramsci, for example, mm-hmm. right? Um, that means that different elements in the system are put together and they function together. They're linked together so that they function as a machine, as an apparatus, as a mechanism, like a, an alarm system I use as an example, right? You put different technical devices, a manual, knowledge about how to switch it on and off, right? If you should know this at least. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so all different elements are put together there and they're linked to each other so that the whole system can function. Mm-hmm. So this is the baseline of, of what a uh, dispositive is. And, and then, um, for example, in, in French language, I use the term um, dispositif d'alarm for alarm systems. So I have the word dispositif. Um, is it is it the system itself mm. or is it the the connections that make the system? Um, it is the connections that make the system. And this is typical for Foucault, right? Also in discourse, it's not that much a content of a discourse, but the rules that establish yeah. a discourse. And that's the same idea here. So how come these elements are ordered together to form the dispositive? What links them logically or, okay. or illogically? So... Um, so that's very important to look at the net that is established between mm-hmm. these elements. But of course, you have to somehow identify the elements first in order to see, you know, what, how they are connected and, and what functions they have in this positive. Um, then in, on the second line, um, it's, um, this positive is thought as a strategic intervention. So it's, it's, it's a production that, um, uh, that strategically intervenes into society in response to an emergency case. And this, I think, fits really nicely when you think of the refugee crisis, right? It's a mm. crisis. We have to intervene. And also, I mean, Germans were mobilized, right, to, to, to volunteer, to donate. Uh, the state was uh, busy building shelters, uh, coming up with new administrative regulations. Even now, it's still going on a bit. Um, so there is a sort of, of, of pressing need to act, right? We have to do something. And again, um, so this sort of strategic intervention is something that we can also see again in French language when I talk about it, uh, the dispositif, the uh, contre le chômage, so all the means and the measures taken in order to fight unemployment, for example. Right? This is a dispositif in France, in French language. Um, and then on a third level, um, and this is similar to a discourse that this positive establishes the current truth, mm. the valid truth at the moment in time, right? Of course, this can change, but at the point where we are living, it defines the truth just like discourses do. What, is, what can we say about a refugee? What is a refugee? Who is a refugee? How do we talk about refugees? How are they, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what do we project into them? Um, this is established also in this positive, which is quite similar to discourse research, right? yeah, trying to flesh out. How the objects, how our discourses objectivate, objectivated. Right? Excellent. And, and then, um, so I know we're going to get to a, a wonderful example that I'm going to try and bring some multimedia in. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. In. Um, so, um, that, 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 th- yeah. there's a reason that you've, you've chosen that as your example. So, so how, how are, yeah. are we, um, utilizing this notion of the positive? Yeah. Um, 
in your research? That's a big question, right? When you do research, and I, I, I'm often also an ethnographer, so I like to look at the local level, at the micro level, but as a trained political scientist, I also look at power, right? So I want mm. to connect these levels. And then the question is, how does power work in, uh, on a micro level, actually? And, um, I mean, you can look at discourses as, as I would say what most of us do in discursive studies in religion, right? You look at the, the meso macro level of, of discourses, how religion is established as, as an object and so forth. But we don't look so much down on a local level, how mm. it triggers down, how it shapes, um, behavior, um, practices, how people incorporate it in their lives. And this is where it becomes effective. Yes. Right? So what I look at is um, not so much at, at the how, what Foucault usually did. I looked up at, at how science, mm, yeah, you know, a, a expert uh, talk establishes knowledge. Law and that. Yeah, exactly. Right. But I look at the intermediate level. I use the term from Jürgen Link, a German um, scholar of, of literature. I use the term uh, interdiscourse. These are discourses that try to break down expert discourses into uh, everyday life. For example, talk shows do that, right? They get in experts that talk about things that moves, that, that, that somehow keep society busy, that are press, pressing again, right? Social questions. And they try to, to solve them, to, to propose solutions and to make it, make it intelligible for, for people in everyday life. And this is the example I used in the presentation today. There's one um, show um, that was produced in, uh, from, from by a German TV or uh, news outlet, NTV, and by the end of 2015 it started, and uh, the production went on until the beginning of 2016. The show is called, or the program is called, Mahaba, Willkommen in Deutschland. This means basically, hello, welcome to Germany. And it's um, it's a program with episode, with roughly 18 episodes and each episode has about five minutes and the aim of the show is to explain germany to the refugees basically <laughs> let's hear a little bit from that show <laughs> سواء تقبل واحترام أنماط الحياة هذه وغيرها يعتبر أساسا للمجتمع في ألمانيا. So what's going on here? Well, he's basically saying in Arabic that um, that personal freedom is very important in Germany, that you have personal choices, and among this is that you can choose whatever sexual orientation you would like, and that everybody has to respect it. So this this is he portrays this as that is how things are done in Germany. And so, <laughs> and so, and so, and this is fairly, fairly typical really, of the, the program. This is very typical. Yeah, he has one part always where he establishes what he thinks is typical of Germany and what he thinks refugees, so-called refugees, need to know because they don't know that yet. You know, so he insinuates, "I tell you no because you probably don't know, but you need to know that when you come here." So that means those coming from Syria, from Afghanistan, they don't know anything about choice, freedom, and so forth, because their um, societies are oppressed. This is the insinuation. And then he has some, episode, uh, some sections in the episode where he then talks with an expert. Why they're experts, we don't know, but he talks with them and deeper. Sometimes they're psychologists. Um, there was also a lawyer in one episode, and in some episodes we just don't get to know what their occupation is. We just got to know the name, so mm -hmm. <laughs> it's interesting. 
it doesn't feel the need to explain why it's talking why it's talking to this specific person over this specific topic. Okay, so so what we have here is we have um, sort of a, a, a national discourse in some way on the refugee mm-hmm. um, being channeled um, through this um, individual in this television program yeah. and, and directly speaking um, to yeah um, to people who are coming in. Yeah, he's addressing them directly also linguistically. <laughs> so mm. He's saying, well, do or ear that you you have to do this and this, and then everything will work fine, right? And the load is, or the burden is put on the refugees because they now know how they have to behave. So please behave like this, and then we don't have any problem. <laughs> yeah, it's a know. crash call, of course, in, in, I don't know, integration. <laughs> like, yeah, so. I mean, God forbid that the host society would have to, yeah. have to change as well. But I mean, the interesting thing is that it tells a lot about how we imagine ourselves as Germans, right? I mean, there's no, and when he talks about the Germans, there's no ambiguity, there's no contradiction. We are so clear, <laughs> basically. Mm. So easily to decipher, right? We support uh, sexual freedom, do this and this. But this is really not the case. It's something else. But mm. This is the discourse we are having about ourselves and we imagine ourselves. So, okay. I'm, I'm just going to interrupt your flow mm-hmm. a little bit. So do we know our... Are refugees actually watching these? Um, like, have you found that in your field yeah. work? Like, are yeah. people encountered them? And, and how are they yeah. encountering them? Well, if you look at, up at YouTube, you see that refugees comment in Arabic on the show. I haven't analyzed those yet, but um, I have downloaded them. And it's interesting material, I think, uh, look at the comments. And also, during my field work, um, well, I, I, I did field work in a church where a group of six refugees have asked for asylum. It's called church asylum in Germany, so it's a sanctuary. They were under threat of deportation to Bulgaria. Um, so they, they had passed on their, on their um, while, while fleeing Syria, they had passed through Bulgaria, they got registered there with their fingerprints, and arriving in Germany, they were not eligible for for um applying for asylum here because they had been registered in the EU, in Bulgaria, elsewhere. So they would have been sent back. So their last chance to stay in Germany was to go into a church, ask for church asylum, because then the, the police officers don't enforce the deportation. They don't go into the premises of the church. It's like a, a tolerated agreement between the church and uh, uh, the state, basically. Mm. It's not a law, right? It's, it's, uh, it's not written in law somewhere, but it's an agreement. And it's, it's also the church then that takes over the asylum procedure. They help, they provide lawyers to the refugees. They um, interact with the state authorities. So, yeah, that's the, that's the construct of it. And um, in the neighborhood where I live in Hannover, uh, I got to I heard that there are six refugees in a Protestant church there who have asked for church asylum. They have been granted church asylum, and I thought, oh, that's a good opportunity, you know. To go there, um, because also I studied Arabic in Syria, so I know Syrian Arabic and I know Syria quite well from all my travels there. So I, I also felt it would be good to be there. Mm-hmm. So I came also sort of an intermediary between um, the volunteers of the church and of the neighborhood. I saw a volunteer group formed in order to support them. And, and the Syrians who were in the church at the time, they were not allowed to, to leave the premises. As soon as you, I'm basically, as soon as you step out of the premises and you're caught by a police officer, yeah. you're gone. Yeah, the church cannot protect you anymore. <laughs> the power of the church ends there. Yeah, it sounds really <laughs> like actually going into a, a national embassy in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. yeah. Um, 
So you, you, you. I'm sure you're going to have some examples. Um, in fact, you weren't able to give some in your, <laughs> in your presentation yeah. from your ethnographic work. But you, you also then you've been taking this discourse um, that's being uh, propounded, particularly in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh yeah, I did the program. Yeah. Um, and you, you sort of you, you set up a, what you call was it chains of equivalence? Or, yeah. Uh, that's just a side that I counted the program. I got to know the program while I was working in uh, volunteering in church okay. assignment. This yeah. was the story behind yeah, yeah, yeah. it. Okay. Uh, because one of the um, one of the men who was as a volunteer in the church assignment, he was a retired German teacher and he taught German to the refugees and he used the program for his classes. Oh. <laughs> and uh, I know a few refugees who who know it at least and who have looked at it. And um, is and also given the Grimme Prize, which is like a prestigious German TV award, which also shows its standing of it, right? mm-hmm. at least from the German side. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But what I've done with the uh, with the eighteen episodes, uh, I've watched them several times, and I try to see how they construct what you've been hinting at chains of equivalence. This is a term I get from Laclau. So it means that you, you look basically um, how are different categories, labels uh, put on an equal footing, linked, mm-hmm. right, with reference to a third category. So um, how is, um, now you look actually for element A and B that are equivalent in reference to C. Okay. And this is what I did with uh, the episodes. And what I came, well, what it was became quite clear, right, from the start is that there are two main categories that are the reference categories for, for everything that is constructed as a German society and then the society of the refugees. And since it's mainly about Germany, the, the German society plays a, whole, a main role yeah. <laughs> in the episode. And the, the, the refugee societies, there seem to be Arabic, um, Arabic the, addressed to Arabic speakers, and they assume to be Muslim, mm-hmm. Islamic. So this is what we get to know about this. There's some more markers where they explicitly um, characterize these societies as sexually oppressed, uh, as uh, violence. They, they mention a few, uh, uh, the host, Constantine Schreiber, mentions a few times violence against men, uh, children and women in these societies, and this is not tolerated in Germany and is sanctioned by law. Something the refugees need to know in case they want to engage with that. Right? <laughs> so, um, this is what we get to know about a refugee, the societies of the refugees. And then he uses all different terms and concepts in order to flesh out what is German society all about. And the main terms that we keep reoccurring is on the German side is secular and the German constitution. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of constitutional patriotism <laughs> is going on there. So as a foundational myth, right? it's the German constitution that's there and that it makes sure that we are secular and that democratic and so on. And then the the, the, um, the other side, the, the um, refugee society, is contrasted to it. So there, we have secularity here, or we are secular here. They are Muslim. There is Islam, and this is explicitly done so done so in the statements. And mm. So it's a secular Islam is one contrast, and then you have um, the constitution, the German constitution, and Sharia. Although they're really different concepts, it's totally different categories. You cannot really <laughs> compare. But he does it. Right? Yeah. So it's for the, the viewer gets the impression that the Sharia is just a positive law put into web, you know, into law books. You can just uh, look at and then you know what it is all about, which is not. Exactly. In, in but that is another story. Yeah, then. Yeah. 
So then in the rest, you can see how he fleshes out what a secular is. And there's where it gets interesting, because most um, of us think well, maybe it comes up with something like this. It's a separation of state and religion, or state institutions and religious institutions. He mentions this only once, without going further into it. Mm -hmm. What he mentions all the time, and he talks about secular democratic society is, uh, is rights and freedom, individual rights and freedom. And there are about two rights he mentions in particular, which is freedom of religion and sexual rights. Mm. And this is what I find very intriguing that, you know, how the secular is then all down to, to a freedom and rights discourse, but in particular freedom of religion and sexual rights. Mm -hmm. This is how he constructs these equivalences mm. all geared toward this is the German society. Excellent. Sorry to interrupt the episode, but we just wanted to let you know to remind you about our Patreon link. Uh, the Religious Studies Project has always been free since its inception, um, but we know that there's a great problem in academia with uh, people not being paid for the work that they're expected to do, particularly early career scholars. And we at the RSP want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So you can help if you can spare even one pound a month um, by going to patreon.com slash Project RS and subscribing. We know that these podcasts are very useful for people who are teaching and people in their learning. So if you can help um, either by subscribing there or by making a one-off donation using the PayPal button on our website, it would be greatly appreciated and will help us keep bringing you this podcast for free and fight against exploitation in academia. But now, back to the episode. So this this is all, you know, very perhaps sort of esoteric in the sense that we're talking about what's being said in the program. Mm -hmm. But, but yeah. how 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 does this how is it playing out on the ground, yeah. as it were, um, in your experiences with yeah. your research participants? And this is really what interests me, right? How the discursive which or the, the truth which is established on a discursive level then plays out in everyday life and in interaction and how it shapes people's behavior and I had a few, um, yeah, ex well, I'm starting to sift through my data and there I've seen a few things that come up on a regular basis. Um, one thing is that, um, the, the, the discourse of uh, secular societies or secular Germany is there to, to ensure that we have the freedom of choice, that we have a choice, and that we can fulfill our desires, which I find really interesting <laughs> that this is the, the, the task or the, the, the aim of, 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 of secularism, right, to do that. Mm. Um, I see this in certain instances, for example, the one example I used uh, during my presentation was um, an interaction between me and a woman from a volunteer group, I call her Anna, um, and she was, well, she was thinking about engaging romantically with the uh, with a Syrian who was not in uh, not part of the group in, in in the church asylum, but she knew from elsewhere. But she was taking me as an expert on Islam. I wanted to know, and I had questions about it because she said um, that this friend of her, the Syrian friend of her, said that um, if he ever wanted to have a girlfriend or to marry, this woman should to be should be covered, wear a headscarf, just a normal headscarf. And at the beginning, I didn't understand the problem she had because I thought, okay, fine. So <laughs> he's saying this to you. You're not uh, in any relationship with him, so that should be fine. But she really wanted him to step back from this, not to make this choice, right? She wanted to ensure that he would make a different, a better choice. Mm -hmm. And so she was asking me about anything from the religious tradition that she could use now to convince him that this is not 
good Islam, what he's doing there, right? Anything she could use strategically, <laughs> basically, because she didn't want to accept his choice, basically. So, I mean, there is a, 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 a discourse of choice, and but some things are taken out of. It, it's not, um, there's some things that you cannot choose. It's taken out of the range of options you have, like covering. Mm-hmm. Um, and this occurred really often. There were a lot of discussions about covering and headscarves and so on. Um, for example, um, there were often discussions, uh, or people were discussing, uh, with one of the women in, or there was one woman, one woman only in the group of the six Syrians who were asking, uh, for asylum in the church. Yeah. Um, she had never worn a headscarf in her life, neither in Syria nor in Germany. For her, that was not a special, a big deal, nothing special. But people kept asking her, why are you not wearing a headscarf here? It's, for sure, it must be because you're in Germany right now and you have the choice, whereas in Syria, you didn't have the choice. And she just tried to make sure, against all odds, no, I didn't wear a headscarf in, in Syria either, but people didn't really want to believe this. Mm-hmm. And um, there was a man from the volunteer group, this is just one instance, also engaging her and uh, in a conversation on a headscarf, and he was supportive of her choice. That yeah, it's a good choice you're making, not wearing the headscarf, because how could you otherwise rephrase that participate in society and be yourself if you would not be wearing a headscarf? How, you know, how can you be a valid participant in a society when you wear a headscarf and cover up? Right? So again, this is not part of the secular choice. <laughs> yeah, basically. Exactly. Well, well, yeah, the, there's a the secularity allows good religion space. Yeah, then uh, it's never differentiated, but this is the idea by, behind it, right? So there is also the idea that the that, that, that the secular encompasses religion basically, hmm. and that's what people also phrase, right? Uh, we have fear of religion; uh, it's part of our makeup. It's and religion also is it's not not a problem to have religion because we still have the choice. Religion doesn't interfere with it, but, right? But as long as it doesn't interfere with sort of liberal secular exactly. principles, yeah, exactly. As long as it doesn't interfere with the sexual the, free, the sexual rights or the freedom to choose your faith or your lifestyle or whatever. And um, what we see then, if you look at how um, the, it's contrasted with Islam, it's not that um, the secular and religion is contrasted, but that the secular and religion on one side is contrasted with Islam on the other side. So Islam is not yet in the realm of the secular and the religions, actually. Yeah. And this I find very intriguing. That maybe that's yeah, particular about Germany, I'm not sure. We have to look at other societies, how it's spelled out there. I find it very interesting that religious is part of the, the makeup life, obviously, of, of German secular society is accepted. Um, Islam not yet, because this is why Islam has to reform, has to change, which means, you know, just giving way to all the choices. <laughs> so making sure you can make all the sexual choices you want to make, all the lifestyle choices and so on. But you must never take a choice that might be considered Islamic or Muslim. That's an interesting thing, right? Being Muslim in a stereotypical sense is not part of the choice, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> not mm-hmm. there. Exactly, yes, because when one makes a, a Protestant choice, well, one doesn't, well, you don't talk about that. Yeah. It's yeah. also interesting in the episodes of um, this, this, this TV program, when they symbolize religion visually, it's not Protestantism. It's totally muted. He never talks about Protestantism yet. Neither this discursively, or when he's talking, he doesn't mention Protestantism. It, it's not depicted visually. It's 
He talks about Catholicism, Judaism, and Islam. And this is also what is portrayed visually. Protestantism is not there. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a default position, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's muted. Totally. Harmless. It's harmless, <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, um, and I should just say, we've had to have the windows open because it's so warm in here. <laughs> it's so terrible, I, I yeah. hope that the <laughs> listeners are enjoying this slight um, bird song. That <laughs> um, just to, to get towards wrapping up here, yeah. um, so that's been some excellent um, examples from your ethnographic work mm-hmm. and also um, you know, tying it in to the broader national discourse through the, the mm-hmm. um, vehicle of this, this TV program. But I mm-hmm. guess if, if I were to force you to, to come up with some conclusion um, <laughs> about, um, the, about the, the religious and the secular and the construction of refugees yeah. in Germany, um, where would you go? Yeah. Uh, first of all, I have to mention, I didn't look for any notions of a secular religious at the beginning when I was doing the research. It just came up to me because people were using also the terminology, right? From me, they are polemical terms. <laughs> Basically, people use in order to identify. Um, so for me, they are not analytical categories I use. Um, what I, well, what I see, and this is now the argument I'm putting up, is that I see that in this dispositive of the refugee, basically, you have the notions of the secular and the religious that are constructed there and are implemented into everyday life. Um, but they're not, they're normative, of course, right? They're not neutral. Mm-hmm. And, um, they're also inserted into interaction. And this is where it comes to shaping subjectivities, right? Because the, for example, the, 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 the Syrians and, and, uh, at church, they were constantly being, um, confronted with a secular idea of, of being, of being an individual, right? The secular conceptualization of subjectivity. And they were more or less subtle <laughs> as to adapt to it, to internalize it. Yeah. And this is what, I think this is very interesting when you look in terms of power effect. Mm-hmm. Now, this is how power is inserted into life, into, into micropolitics, basically. Power is not something abstract that somehow defines discourses and is established in discourses, um, but it also triggers down into everyday life. Yeah, the, the, the norms of conduct and the things yeah. that are censured and yeah. the, it, all those unspoken rules, yeah. which actually this program is ending up speaking the unspoken yeah. rules in many ways. Yeah, they're fleshing it out for you, so you can just take an easy lesson yeah. with you and know what you have to do. I mean, so so this is what I've seen my I've, I've seen in my fieldwork so far. How uh, this was my focus so far. How you know, actually, through interactions between the Syrians and the volunteers in this specific setting, specific subjectivities, secular subjectivities are inserted into their Muslim subjectivities. So now they have to be Muslim in a secular specific way secular Protestant specific way in order to become part of German society, right? In order to be here. Um, and this, what further interests me in my fieldwork, and this is what I will be doing in the coming months, uh, is to see how the other side handles this. Mm. Right? They're, uh, basically, they're presented with subject positions and they have to somehow deal with them, negotiate them. Um, either they, I don't know whether they try to resist consciously or just, just adapt a bit, internalize a bit. Uh, you know, it's, usually it's much more ambiguous and, and, and not so clearly uh, seen. But it's interesting to see how what they do with it. You know? What I notice in my fieldwork is that they, at least the six with whom I was dealing quite a lot and I'm still in contact and, and see them on a regular basis, um, they're insecure about how to behave, <laughs> basically, because they're totally decentered right now. Mm-hmm. 
all these demands are put onto them and they don't see why they sh- what the difference is between them and what is demanded of it. Mm. But still, they don't seem to, to, to be properly adapted. Mm. And for them, it's really difficult to wrap their head around. Um, some of the men even ask me, Carmen, when I'm walking in the streets, am I allowed to look women in the face? So is that, is that indecent? Right? Especially after the events in Cologne, uh, mm-hmm. with the assaults, uh, on, on women on New Year's Eve and not all the entire discourse that came out, the debate that came up afterwards. They said, and if I see women, should I go to the other side? Should I better cross the street so not to be offensive? So th- for some, it's really difficult to, yeah. who, are, who are conscious of the, the, the this, this sort of, yeah, antagonisms going on there, how to deal with it in their daily lives, how to, um, how to behave properly, yeah. so not to be uh, seen as as an outsider, as as, as uh, a predator, for example. Right? Yeah. So they have to find new scripts, basically, <laughs> for for how to behave properly. And this can be done by negotiating, but also on a more subconscious level, I think. So I'm trying to get at this whole level of micropolitics. That's <laughs> fantastic. Well, we are out of time, so we're going to have to <laughs> stop it there, but. And it's excellent to hear of um, such uh, rigorous empirical work being done, but with this sort of uh, critical discourse, analytical power angle. Um, A lot of times, empirical work lacks that. that, So it's really good to hear. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you for having me. Thanks so much, Chris and Carmen. Uh, More than welcome. Absolutely fascinating interview. Um, Next week's interview is the first from our new uh, batch of interviewers. Yes, it's really exciting. Um, over the summer, we put out a call um, saying that we were looking for uh, new team members and uh, a number of individuals uh, jumped at the opportunity um, and we're really excited for the fruits of this. And one thing that we uh, asked them to do as part of the uh, I'm going to say initiation um, was to record a brief uh, introduction to themselves and uh, for the first time we were able to bring you that introduction so you can get to know our interviewers a little bit better um, so here is a little introduction recorded uh, by Maria Alexievskaya I'm going to pass over right now Hello my name is Maria Alexievskaya I'm a PhD candidate in sociology at the University of Ottawa which is located on the eastern coast of Canada my specializations include uh, immigration, interreligious dialogue, and religiously diverse education system. My thesis project is interdisciplinary and involves uh, the fields of sociology of migration, education, and religious studies. I'm conducting a study about a Christian school system which was established by post-war Dutch Calvinist immigrants in Canada. My intention is to identify and analyze the influence of the schools on the worldview of their graduates. So I study how graduates of the school system integrate in the political and social life of a diverse and pluralist society like Canada. In addition, I am conducting research about Dutch Calvinists who have initiated a dialogue with Muslim communities in order to overcome intolerance and prejudice. It's interesting that Calvinism has a long history of cooperation with other religious groups in the Netherlands. Dutch Calvinism, in its theological concepts, supported an idea of confessional plurality, which is based on its members' commitment to freedom of religious conscience. Thus, Dutch immigrants have brought these ideas and experience of interfaith cooperation to Canada, 
and have built trust, compassion and respect toward Canadian Muslims during the last several years. Uh, both my thesis and project on multi-faith uh, dialogue draw heavily on interviews to analyze the perspectives of participants on particular topics, issues and phenomena. I completed my bachelor degree in journalism and uh, have gained five years' experience in religious print and broadcast journalism. So I have equal interest in both uh, academic and journalist interview process and apply experience from both types of interview. Thank you. We hope that you enjoyed hearing from Maria there, and uh, we know that you will enjoy hearing from Maria next week and um, when she's been interviewing Jasmine Zine for us on... Um, which is called the interview Preserving Identity and Empowering Women with the question, how do Canadian Muslim schools affect their students? So a number of issues coming up there around gender, uh, diaspora, minority, majority status, and Islam and education. So it's uh, a really timely and topical interview uh, from Maria. And, you know, if you think that you could also join the team, uh, if you've been excited uh, by the, that sort of little audio intro, um, get in touch with us uh, we're not saying we will take you on but we'll certainly work with you <laughs> <laughs> thanks for listening the Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions the North American Association for the Study of Religion and the International Association for the History of Religions brought to you by Founders and Editors-in-Chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson and Managing Editor Thomas J. Coleman III our features are edited by Jonathan Tuckett and our opportunities digest by Yana Shirley Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock with audio assistance from Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford and sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop. Don't forget you can support the project using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or by donating at patreon.com backslash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals.